This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Folks, the Holistic Musician Academy.com is in its beta phase two. Please come around and have a look at what we're offering. I say this with such gusto because this episode is intricately related to a lot of the issues we attempt to address. And my academy is my endeavor to dig deeper into these and help find solutions for people who are looking for the same. Um, a list I include myself on as well, by the way, just for the record. Definitely all the work in progress. To give you a little history on uh, me and Miles, though, we met at Tate Modern at the cafe literally a day after my graduation ceremony for my master's degree. And uh, as is often the case, I was struggling to come to terms with uh, some of the feedback I'd received during the progress of the same, all part of the academic process, uh, I'd like to believe, uh, and this whole um, learning to get better at what it is I'm supposed to be doing thing. Is that a thing? Well, I just made it a thing. But don't let me distract you with much of this ramble because um, I do want you to save most of your energy for this wonderful, wonderful conversation with this wonderful, wonderful human who uh, is, in my opinion, the personification of everything I consider an educator is supposed to be about. So uh, without much further ado, Miles Miniachi. Hello fellow beings, welcome loading a safe space to attempt honest raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire we are officially on tape welcome miles thank you so good to be here the honor is all mine thanks for doing this thanks for being such a fantastic sport and just jumping in i really appreciate this no no my great pleasure i think if you have one of those moments in life where you uh happen to bump into someone and it seems very propitious you should just follow that where it leads Amen to that. And that brings me to my, that you just made it really easy for me to get the conversation uh, oh, going. Because, uh, yeah, the way we met is actually uh, quite yeah. an interesting circle, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, I hang out at, at that cafe at Tate Modern in London for my listeners. Uh, that's like my office at least a few times a year, usually, I mean, pre-pandemic anyway. Right. And believe it or not, that, that very moment, I don't remember what your memories are exactly of what I looked like sitting there all forlorn at that corner but i was literally you look very studious did i did i i was just i was just mostly just what's around what i'm looking for um i was just being really i'll, I'll be gracious and say contemplating very hard okay. on exactly what had hit me because just literally a, a week mm. back i'd received feedback on a paper uh, my final paper from a master's degree and I couldn't make very little head or tail of what my <laughs> examiners were trying to, <laughs> the point they were trying to get across. I'd organized this enormous project for my final M-level right. project, which involved over 100 participants. I wrote this entire thing over yeah. four countries. I organized this at one of the most well-recognized conservatories in Asia. 
And yet the feedback I got, and I was also researching something that's never been talked about uh, in academic circles, right. and I could not make head or tail of what my examiners uh, had to tell me in, in response. <laughs> to be fair, just just to clarify, I did get a decent mark, but, uh, you know, uh, stickler that I am... Um, if I had had a little more time, I would have challenged uh, challenged that paper. Mm. But uh, but yep. it was the difference between me graduating that year or uh, waiting another semester. So I was literally <laughs> sitting there and was like, "What the hell do academics want from me?" And then you and, and and what is it they want? I mean, what is it about my writing that they don't get anyways? And you literally land there with your wife, who's also a writing <laughs> professor, right? And it was like you know, uh, uh, at the risk of sounding as woo woo as it gets, it was literally the universe answering my question. There you go. Here's here here are a couple of answers. That being said, I found our conversation so refreshing because you didn't sound like, you know, quote-unquote academic in the manner in which you uh, you uh, kind of address these issues at all. It was a breath of fresh air. Um, um, so let me ask you this. Um, I'm going to just go, go straight for the jugular. Do you, do, you, do you think there's a big difference between academic uh, attitudes or even attitudes towards writing, especially when it comes to the language English, depending on which country you're based in? Like, I'll just say, it, like, I find a lot of my mentors, I've had a very hybrid education. A, part, a lot of my education has been North American. A lot of it has been German. And uh, now um, a lot of it yeah. has been British. And I do see marked differences, though. And in my experience, I do find, and I'm not saying either of them is perfect or either of them is evil or whatever, I do find um, uh, my interaction with my American mentors so far quite the most comfortable. It feels like there is space for more perspective. Like there, there is space for development. There is space for um, being open to completely newer approaches to things. What's your take on this? I'm sorry, I just kind of put you right on into the deep end. <laughs> but that really strikes at the heart of what we were discussing the first time that we met was... Um, different approaches to language, mm -hmm. um, whether it's from uh, different nationalities or whether it is from different backgrounds. I do think there's definitely, and, and as someone who's taught, uh, it's called different things uh, variously. English is a second language or teaching second language learners or teaching multilingual students. That's a big part of my background. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we note in that field, there's a theory called contrastive rhetoric. And I will note that this theory, like most other academic theories, is somewhat disputed, but it's generally implemented in those fields. And the basis of the concept of contrastive rhetoric is that language is a key part of culture and a key part of identity. Mm. So it's not only going to vary on the surface level in terms of the, the language and the phonemes and the marks that are used, but that it's going to be used differently in terms of what we call rhetoric, which is the thought behind the language. So I would, something else I'll have to send you that I think you would find interesting as a rather, in my field, famous video from Oregon State University from their writing center called Writing at the Borders. And what they did was they began interviewing and surveying and examining writing samples from international students coming from a variety of different cultural backgrounds, different nationalities. And one of the things they found was that there were some significant differences in how folks present their opinion and organize their thoughts in writing. Oh, um, yes. Right? Not just different languages. Mm. And so they, some of the interviews are really interesting and uh, uh, really enlightening. And I would 
add to that some of my own personal experiences teaching many, many international students at uh, University of California, Davis, where I teach in Northern California, mm -hmm. has a very high percentage of international students. Uh, many students from, actually many students from India and Pakistan, uh, People's Republic of China, Taiwan, Korea. And one of the things that some of the students talk about that's interesting is that there's different approaches to organizing your thoughts. The American so approach, true. and I want to be very careful here because with contrastive rhetoric, one of the things that's disputed about it, misapplied, it can lead to sort of overgeneralizing groups of people, and that's not what I want to do. Thank you so, so much I for to, saying that. Right? Yeah. So I want to make some broad points, but not seem as though I'm saying, you know, all people from blank write like this, because that's you. not <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no I, I know exactly what you mean, and I really right. sincerely appreciate you clarifying that from the very top. No, no, my pleasure. But I think that it is useful to look at broad general trends even while honoring everyone's individuality, because it helps us be able to communicate better and teach second and third languages better. I agree. Um, we've seen this in our in uh, our own country, in my own country, with uh, use of contrastive rhetoric. One of the things we've noted in teaching in uh, economically underserved areas, areas with large African-American populations, um, the traditional approach to teaching what we call AAVE, African-American Vernacular English, mm -hmm. teaching it as incorrect grammar, right, versus, oh, this is a dialect that's specific to your neighborhood or your group of friends and family mm -hmm. and your community. Here's another dialect called, uh, interestingly, standard English. Standard usually means white European, but here's another dialect that you can learn that will give you some economic and social mobility if you know both dialects. Fascinating. Guess which approach tends to be much more successful, <laughs> right? Exactly. The one that doesn't, you know, is not predicated on cultural annihilation. Mm. Thank you so much for saying, for, for pointing that out as well. I, I remember you referring to this during that very conversation right. in London as well. And right. I, that was, again, so refreshing to hear, but don't let me interrupt you. Please keep going. Well, what I was going to uh, lead to is that there are some interesting examples of different rhetorical patterns for folks from different uh, backgrounds uh, culturally. So one of the things that's, that this video from Oregon State University shows is there's a number of um, students from different uh, Latin American countries. There's a Colombian student, for instance, that talks about how uh, uh, American rhetoric or, or style of speaking and writing in particular tends to be very direct, mm -hmm. um, uh, very forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, we were talking about this in our first meeting, I think, that I grew up as a kind of a, a military brat or foreign service brat on American air bases. And the joke in like diplomatic meetings or parties or officers clubs would be like, oh, there's a bunch of people from different countries at this party. Can you spot the Americans? <laughs> and the punchline is they're the ones in the four corners of the room because they have someone backed up there talking to them six inches from their face. <laughs> so we... We tend to be very direct, right? Yeah. Any mm -hmm. person that's had writing instruction in the States with the five-paragraph essay knows you tell people what you're going to say. You remind them of what you're saying. You restate it again at the end. It's very in your face. Gotcha. I think... Um, you, you, what do you think? I just think that you're really helping me unpack a lot of my own mindsets. Oh, because uh, yeah. Because uh, just to jog our memory, I'm, I'm German, <laughs> of, of German, of right. Indian ancestry, who uh, mm -hmm. whose first childhood was spent in London. Uh, but over mm -hmm. the years, um, so, so my first language is English, uh, but my mindset can be extremely German. 
<laughs> and I feel like one of the reasons I find it quite easy to, well, I, I, again, I don't want to generalize here either, but what right. I do find, um, the, what's the right way to say, the American version of English or the way American, North Americans really <laughs> usually communicate, um, but probably the, most, the easiest to latch onto because it's almost, it, it's, it has a lot of parallels with uh, the, the manner in which communication happens in Germany as well. It's super direct mm. to the point right. we're blunt, even rude, <laughs> like German by international standards is officially rude. Right. That, that's not even a secret, you know. I mean, there are just jokes right. about it all over the place. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll totally own that. Um, and it just helps me um, uh, really understand uh, a lot of a lot of the things I have been trying to unravel here. Would you tell us a little about how your experiences have been in receiving communication from this very vast and diverse milieu you work with? Very, very interesting uh, uh, journey that has been, right? Mm-hmm. So we tend to have a, a significant amount of uh, student body, as I said, from uh, People's Republic of China, uh, Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan, Korea. Mm-hmm. One of the um, most interesting things about working with that population, uh, there uh, is perceived to be uh, a significant problem with plagiarism. Uh, with many of those students, huh. but uh, and this was a major issue for uh, some of our administrators. But in digging deeper culturally into the use of language in a lot of those countries, particularly uh, uh, People's Republic of China, one of the things that is uh, taught in a number of those countries, and I think it may have to do with the idea of having a much uh, older culture and uh, more respect for uh, a culture of the past, perhaps mm. than countries that focus on innovation and youth like the United States, a lot of folks are are raised to write based on classic essay models or or poems or discourse from what's known right. as a classical period of Chinese history. And so you're actually taught to use a template, yeah. um, right? And you're taught to work collectively in many, many uh, uh, academic situations. Yeah as a reflection of kind of this collectivist idea versus this or hyper individuality of American culture. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, now this is not necessarily true when they get to what the Chinese call Gaokao, which is like the college entrance exam. They have individual scores, obviously, mm-hmm. but there's a preponderance of uh, collective work and an ability to uh, use uh, templates and even sentence frames from classical literature Right. And so what we see as plagiarism is seen as acceptable. And this has been an issue in some cases with um, publishing scientific papers internationally. And the more we investigate this, we find that it's not a lapse of ethics. It's a different approach to writing and collaboration culturally. That is so fascinating. Permission to respond with another ramble. (laughs) Yes, please do. This, I forgot to add another sector to my education. Some of it, uh, 12 years of it was also in... um, primary school in India. Correct. Right. And, and what, you, what you just described is so, really? so similar to, yeah. Huh. Picture this. I'm, I'm, I'm a nine-year-old, you know, fresh off the boat from London, and my dad insists <laughs> I, I attend a local Indian school. Right. Puts me in this class. I don't speak the local language at a, uh. at a, at a, uh, well, common level, though, m- you know, mm. my, my uh, ancestral trunk, which is Bengali, is something I'm, I don't, I can't really have adult conversation. You know, I'm great at telling my mom <laughs> what I'd like to have for dinner, <laughs> but 
but uh, I'm, I'm not great at having adult, I can't have an adult conversation in Bengali. And then I'm nine years old in this local school where English is a major, the so-called first language of the school. And yet right. it's a very different version of the same language. And I'm here speaking in my, uh, and I had a very British accent at the time, fresh of the boat, like I said. <laughs> Uh, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, you know, what what the hell is wrong with this kid? And that, that's actually the reason I shared um, a link to my current EP because it addresses a lot of right. the experiences uh, I had back then. Yeah. I've literally been attacked on the street for speaking with what I refer to a non-local accent. Because I would refuse to, I wouldn't write, I wouldn't attend classes, I wouldn't behave in English classes, quote unquote, in the manner the local study boards had prescribed it to be. So here I was questioning the teacher on, you know, specific do's and don'ts. We were just supposed to follow ad lib. Right. And here I was actually unpacking literature that we were just supposed to literally mm. learn by heart and vomit out on paper. Right. And that makes so much sense. And FYI, I never really uh, got used to the system. I eventually had to finish school back in Germany because that was just a whole thing. It just didn't work out for me to... I remember you mentioning that, yeah. Oh, you, yeah? Okay. Uh, so in order for me to eventually pursue my high studies, I had to finish school in Germany because it just hadn't really worked out. That's a whole different story. But this makes so much sense, especially the part where you refer to... Uh, individualism basically being frowned upon mm -hmm. and i remember exactly that mm -hmm. i remember that part where my attempts to have an individualistic perspective which was lauded like literally a year back uh, in london right all of a sudden being the reason I, i'd be uh, you know honestly bullied by my teachers right and and peers. you had disciplinary issues and it's yeah bingo that's the word describe it as as bullying yes. there's a difference between true disciplinary issues and bullying and it's easy to lapse into that with so the authority true. and the power imbalance that comes with that teacher's role thank you for no, saying that again i really that resonates with me too with my experiences on the other side of that with many of my students Really? You want to tell us a little about that? So one of the things that's interesting now fortunately it hasn't edged over into bullying but there's definitely a, a a struggle sometimes or a power dynamic, the idea of this uh, hyper-focusing on academic honesty or plagiarism is, is a good example. Mm -hmm. If we're not careful and we're imposing our own cultural assumptions, we'll tend to you know, create a, a pejorative reaction to what a discrete group of folks from a different background or nationality are doing. And instead, we need to seek to understand right? what's the, the cultural uh, influence that's at work. Mm. Another great example, very similar to what you're telling me, when I first began working with a lot of international students, you know, many of the teachers would complain, well, nobody will participate. Nobody will participate in class discussions. And the classic approach, especially to uh, what are sometimes called remedial uh, college-level English courses or first-year English courses or writing courses, you've, you've seen this before. In the States, at least, it's, oh, we're going to read a couple of different articles with opposing viewpoints, and then you're going to synthesize them and use them to support what your opinion or your take on this topic is. Amazing. That is the sort of meat and potatoes assignment for first-year college writing classes. And we would struggle with many of the international students, right? Many of the uh, Chinese students, for instance. 
and uh, uh, there was very low participation. There, you know, folks were that my colleagues were not pleased with the results we were getting. And it wasn't until I finally began dialoguing extensively with students, having them write some kind of literary autobiographies, like a memoir. We're going to write a couple pages about your journey through education and how you've written or been taught to write in the past call it a literacy narrative. That was really eye-opening. They are not rewarded for questioning the instructor. In fact, they're punished or in some cases even bullied. Bingo. They go through this for 12 years of public education, exactly. come to the U.S. and suddenly we're saying, tell me what you think. Don't worry about what I think. Okay, I think this, now argue with me. And they're going, no, 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 you're not going to trap me. Exactly. It's a trap. <laughs> Where, where's the right. hidden camera? right. Right. I'm going to be punished if I actually answer this question honestly or give my opinion. Right? Oh, yeah. And some of my students, this is now no longer the case as I've been teaching for longer and longer. But when I was beginning, I had students whose parents were caught up in what was called the Cultural Revolution, huh. where they were punished or sent to prison for questioning the regime. Wow, that is real stuff. That's some intense right? stuff. Yeah. Right, Jeez. yeah, of Chairman Mao. There are folks who remember Mao's death and, and Deng Xiaoping taking power and there being somewhat, pre Tiananmen Square, somewhat of a loosening of some Ooh. of those political restrictions. But they remember the sort of reign of terror of the, the Gang of Four and the Cultural Revolution and all that. Wow. So they're brought up saying, don't ever question the teacher. Don't argue against what the text they give you is. Jesus. <laughs> and that is, has changed somewhat in their more recent history. But still, it's an educational system like what you report, where it's more learn by rote, think what the teacher tells you to think. Mm, so much more than just English that we're addressing here, right? <laughs> but it, I think they're, they're, they're intricately connected. May I yes. ask you, these students, how, how do they move on to forge their futures? Do most of them go back? to their passport or uh, ancestral countries or do they build a life in the US or Western parts of the world? In, in, in your observation, what's the trajectory of their careers and lives post this? That's a great question. In my observation, the vast majority of them are returning to their home countries to contribute to the economy. To In many cases, it may be because they see a lot of economic opportunity there. Mm. Uh, China's in a particularly interesting place right now where it still has a nominally communist government or political leadership, but is sort of de facto a free market economy. Right. And so they're kind of having an economic miracle there right now. Unevenly distributed as they tend to be, of course. Yes. Right? Um, but there's in a tremendous amount of opportunity there. Yes. Um, for many other students that are from uh, uh, different areas, uh, uh, from other countries, a lot of them are seeking to contribute to increased development of uh, their country, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where they may be uh, seeking greater economic development for greater prosperity. Mm -hmm. Some folks are, and this is really interesting, uh, uh, particularly some of my students from uh, uh, Iran or or. Many of them are formerly Iranian, now perhaps living elsewhere, uh, such as Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, or folks from Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, folks from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, right? Including the female students in particular, many of them may be uh, first-generation college attendees, and they're learning almost a more kind of critical literacy or use of, of language for uh, uh, 
engagement and, and agency, right? Wow. They may be wanting to apply that to ch challenge some of the regimes and the prevailing, you know, values in their own uh, home country or society. Oof. Yeah. I mean, I cannot imagine what it's like for a first generation college student in the US to return to a country like Afghanistan right now. Right. Yeah. Do, do you actually know of personal in, uh, instances where that's happened? Not since the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban that has put a halt to everything. So okay. it's it concerns me greatly for some of those students that uh, did return. Although most of them, there was a couple years leading up to what just happened recently last year where the uh, visas were revoked or uh, travel was frozen because the situation was so unstable. Right. So most of my students ended up not being able to go back to Afghanistan in particular, at least over the past couple of years. I understand. Miles, with your permission, I would like to rewind a little. Sure. You're obviously a very passionate educator and you come across Thank as you. like the person who's, you know, who's kind of really answered his calling when he's doing what you're doing, especially the way you talk to, about your students. Um, you want to tell us uh, a little bit about your life? Or when did writing start for you? When did education, you know, the role of an educator start for you? Where, what was your journey like? So interestingly, I had a sort of, in some ways, uh, a similar experience to you in which I did not have uh, uh, the greatest memories of my education at a younger age. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess I was always sort of that classic underachiever, right? The C student who could have been doing a lot better, <laughs> but didn't necessarily feel I was challenged enough, you know, in the uh, experiences that I had. I did have some great individual teachers along the way, mm -hmm. um, but I was always sort of an oddball and, and not someone that I, uh, I guess felt like he fit in much or, you know, was whom the, either the social setting or the, the lesson planning was really directed at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was always sort of off in the corner doing my own thing. Hard relate. And, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I had a really great English teacher my senior year, my final year of, of high school, right, mm -hmm. a public school here in the States. And he really was encouraging me. I was sort of lost as to what I wanted to do uh, as a grown-up, as an adult. And he suggested teaching. And I said, well, I'm not really a very good student. And he said, that's exactly why you might be a really good teacher. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> you, resonates. Right? You can relate to someone that is struggling and don't necessarily make the assumption that because someone is struggling academically within the system, that they don't have anything to offer, that they're lazy or unintelligent because you've been there. Yep. And that really resonated with me. And that was actually kind of what got me started on my journey. I taught high school English. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked in the uh, public school K-12 uh, setting here in the States. Mm -hmm. uh, have taught community college, two-year college, uh, university, obviously, where I'm at now. Also, uh, adult education programs, adult literacy programs. Uh, I taught with a program for the, the U.S. Department of Labor called the Job Corps Program. They go into underserved communities, uh, low-income communities, and in these centers, they can learn, uh, students can learn uh, uh, basic literacy skills, get their high school equivalency uh, test, um, and learn trades, vocational trades, and often union trades that they're certified in to give them economic and, and educational mobility. Amazing. That is some very good karma there. <laughs> I try, I try, and I've thoroughly enjoyed every step of the way. That is so, so heartwarming to hear. Um, 
I've had some similar experiences myself um, at a certain phase of my career where we did very, uh, where I participated in very similar um, projects to what you just described, except I'd do it with music, of course. We'd go into right. low-income uh, neighborhoods, territories, try and get students, try and kind of, um, uh, it kind of sounds horrible when I put it this way, but single out students where it was evident they were dealing with stuff at home and mm. uh, try and get them into a band and play music. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so we'd be guest teachers at schools, high schools. And um, looking back, it's one of the toughest jobs I've done uh, in my career, especially since I was also touring intensely at a time. It was it felt oh, very wow. kind of schizophrenic uh, on Sundays. <laughs> uh, but it was also in hindsight, you know, I, I, it's only now much later that I realized how much I've learned from these students, like the true meaning of... Not just music, but the true meaning of, uh, well, education, really. I mean, education as a word gets such a bad rap, yeah. you know. You hear the word education <laughs> and you think of fuddy-duddies and, you know. Like, right. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, if anything, I think if there's any crux of arts, you know, be it writing mm. or music, that's that's where it really starts. Anyway, I digress. Um, so what happens then with um, your trajectory? <laughs> No, no. The rambling is always the most interesting part. That's where we really get to the heart of things. <laughs> I agree. I just I, I do overdo it sometimes. So I apologize in advance. No, no. I, I tend to be quite digressive too, but I always do try to get back to some kind of, of linear thread, right? It's it's sort of like, you know, you have the melody and then we're going to go off and improvise. Bingo. Take an eight, take a 16, come back. <laughs> you speak my language, man. Keep going. <laughs> I'm not quite out there with hard bop where we never state the theme. I'll state it, but then I like to you know, give some variations. Of well, it. hard pop is only only for the not, not for the faint of heart at all. I, I actually played in a hard pop band for an entire really? year. Yeah, we got to tour quite a bit too. It's one of the premier bands in, in my college. I, I lucked out. It was a very privileged wow. position I had, but uh, and I loved it. But it is not for the faint of heart. And right. I never went back to playing that genre of music. Sadly enough, because it's just mm. such a difficult genre to practice uh, to be a right. practitioner of in this day and age. But um, unless you live in New York or something. Thing. All right. But, um, sorry, man. I keep digressing. We, let's talk. No, that again. was that was my digression. I started getting, throwing the musical references I out couldn't, there. I couldn't resist. <laughs> I had to jump in there. But sorry, keep going, man. <laughs> no worries. The latest chapter for me was was twofold. Uh, I really enjoyed the international flavor at University of California Davis, and so I've I've sort of made a home there, mm-hmm. teaching both the you know standard. Uh, 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 writing classes, mostly what we call upper division classes for third and fourth year students, but also teaching some of the classes for multilingual students. Mm. And I've really gained a tremendous uh, insight uh, from uh, working with those students about the differences in um, now, of course, there's probably a separate debate about whether those differences are sort of inherently cultural, right, um, or historical, like this idea of sort of collectivism versus hyper-individuality, right. or whether in some ways they're shaped by very different educational systems. I think maybe, you know, it's a combination of nature and nurture. What's your take on it? Um, I think that there are I'm always hesitant to say that there's something innate uh, within different groups of people because then we get into a very gray area. But Oh, yeah, that's just very, very tricky to navigate. Right. But what I think is true is that how different groups of people in, in different areas have uh, evolved over time socially mm. uh, has a huge influence, right? Um, 
needing to work uh, collectively with a large population of people in until recently a largely rural area like China is very different than a group of, uh, of Europeans, mostly more well-to-do or middle-class uh, uh, Europeans that came to the United States very recently specifically mm -hmm. to set up free trade enterprise. Those are very different backgrounds, right? Indeed. One's going to tend towards, if anything, we tend to to tend to a fault towards extreme individualism yeah. as opposed to, you know, collectivism. So I think it's more about sort of social development over, over time out of, out of your environment and the necessities of that. Yeah, I can confirm. I mean, in the case of India, for example, you have a population mm. which is almost the same as China on, on yeah. a surface area, which is half as large. <laughs> Try, right. you know, try and wrap your head around that. I mean, <laughs> hyper-individualism is, I mean, beyond the closet mm. is not really an option. I mean, even individ so-called individualistic practices in India, it's there's only so much space to really right. exercise it to its complete potential. Right. Yeah, the, the environment really shaping the, the, the person or the society, right? Indeed, and in some cases, it's it's a, actually a question of literal space. You know, I mean, right? It's it's almost metaphorical, but you literally see how <laughs> your physical space around yeah. you shapes your mindset. If you're uh, uh, if you're used to constantly having people around you, if you're used to having, uh, you know, the idea of five people inside a twenty square mm -hmm. meter space living right. together, if you grow up considering that normal. Mm. It it's just it really is a fundamentally different mindset that you're using mm. as a lens. And I notice, and I'm just to clarify to anyone yeah. else who's listening, I'm not saying this from a space of judgment. It's an observation, and I've had the chance to compare the two because uh, I also shuttle like every time I went back in Europe, the first couple of days take take me uh, a few a little getting used to like oh wow oh, all of, all of this space <laughs> for me. Yeah, and and the the effect it has on my mind, and then the first uh, few weeks in India uh, when I'm traveling there is like, holy mm. shit! I need my I need my earplugs first. Where are my earplugs? That's the first <laughs> thing. Where are my earplugs? And I'm just being brutally honest here, and yeah. I'm uh, I'm I'm thinking that is um, I mean that's not something we can bypass in our uh, overall lens, right? Um, I, it's a, a kind of culture shock, constant um, even. Even for someone like you who's very experienced at being uh, a multicultural and multilingual. Indeed. And culture shock, I'm contrary to what a lot of people believe. I and mean, people ask me, why, why are you like, you know this? Why are you struggling to cope? Mm. Knowing it, contrary to what people believe, knowing it doesn't equal coping, you know? Uh, mm. If anything, believe it or not, it can actually in some ways worsen the situation because mm. I'm already like a part of me is already anticipating right. uh, the effects of that culture shock again. So and sometimes that can tend to kind of snowball into uh, mm. trauma, really, to be absolutely honest, uh, yeah. not, not to overdo it here. Expecting something to happen can be another source of anxiety sometimes. Indeed. Exactly. Right. You hit the nail on the head. Yes. Exactly. Interesting. Well, and as our uh, world becomes more global and, and mm. less isolated, mm -hmm. there is this trauma and anxiety that comes with that kind of culture shock. And you see that playing out in a lot of ways. I believe that it's, you know, what's responsible for this sudden resurgence in, in right-wing populism and mm. this idea of 
uh, um, isolationism and sort of denigrating or demonizing other cultures or other countries, right? Uh, we have to find a way either to uh, sort of integrate those uh, uh, different cultures and traditions, or at the very least have some kind of mutual respect. But sometimes folks are acting from a very primal place of that's their response to that trauma or that the discomfort or dis-ease that comes with that culture shock. Right? So true. And so I guess it's a fine, it's a, a way of finding out uh, for ourselves that that is a natural reaction, right? And accepting that and kind of integrating that into to who we are. Thank you for saying that. That makes a lot of sense. Seems like a very sober and very helpful. Oh, I hope so. Thank you. I want to, um, well, I want to respect the theme we kind of, I kind of picked out for, for our conversation, um, uh, which is, I mean, we've, we're circling around it the whole time, but <laughs> let, let's see if we can find, find a way to kind of really kind of drag it down into context and see. <laughs> so the, the, the tagline was, who does English belong to? Yes. So, um, Miles, let me drop you again, drop you in the deeper end and just ask you, who, who do you think English belongs to in 2023? What a great question. <laughs> I know. Okay. I'm so glad no one's asking me this. <laughs> you take this, Professor. I love yeah. this question. I love this. This question to me gets at the heart of um, education, for t particularly folks that teach writing, obviously, mm. um, and that teach writing in a very international setting. Like mm -hmm. I do. And the, so there's really several answers to that question. One is who has it traditionally belonged to, mm -hmm. right? And who does it primarily still belong to now? And another way of addressing that question is uh, to whom do I think it belongs or should belong, right? Let's unpack so, all of that. But before you go ahead, yes. I have an additional a prelude question to that. If ah, I may. okay. Why do you think English became the language of planet Earth? Ah, yes. Um, so English, unfortunately, there's a reason why it's the you know predominant language in so many international settings. It's not a pretty reason. The reason is colonialism right. and is the reach of the British Empire. Of course. Right? It became the language most associated with trade, right? Mm -hmm. And like so many other aspects of history, you know, it's like the saying, follow the money, mm -hmm. right? If you want the answer. And that that really is why. But that gives us an opportunity as teachers of English to say, and this is so true of a lot of how we have to approach education uh, in developed nations, in, in nations like the U.S., we can say, well, how we got here is not a pleasant story, mm -hmm. right? We, we honor the fact that there was a lot of trauma and ongoing trauma associated with how we got here, but we can use the position that we're in now to change that narrative. Fair play. Right. Um, I do wonder, though. Sorry, I keep interrupting. No, no. But you, it's just so juicy with the stuff you're throwing out there. <laughs> it's like, well, in that case, why didn't German or French or Spanish? Uh, I mean, Spanish obviously is one. I mean, the clothes right. on the heels of English. Why didn't these become planet Earth languages? Like the the language of planet Earth. I think it had to do with the. Uh, reach of the British Empire during that period of colonialism, which superseded even other nations like uh, uh, Germany and France, who had a certain amount of territorial holdings, but nothing compared to, you know, the old saying, the sun never sets on yeah. the British Empire, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, the the jewel in the crown of the British Empire was the Raj, was India. Yeah, indeed. Um, right, as, as it was known at the time. Mm -hmm. But you know, for various reasons, like for instance, the uh, Germans were often more concerned with 
European territory and sort of power plays and and uh, uh, using their military there, mm -hmm. the English really took that idea of the mercantile system and sort of ran with it. Right? It really was globalization 1.0, wasn't it? Yes. Crude version, but... <laughs> right. Well, and that's a reality we live in, but it's interesting to think of how recent of a development that really is and how quickly that took over during that period of colonialism. It was really you know, reality altering for the entire planet and to a certain extent traumatizing for much or most of the, the world. Yes, um, I can resonate. I mean, it comes with both poles as well. Right. I remember, I mean, the, the master's degree I referred to, uh, you know, which is kind of the reason behind us meeting, one could say. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm so thankful I got to do that. It gave me like like an Ivy League level education mm. uh, remotely. The the center I did uh, that right. through is, is one of the first to kind of to have figured out a course like this to be able to study in London without necessarily always being there and I'm so thankful to mm. have access to that kind of education right. being location independent uh, but I will be honest at my graduation ceremony there's this old gentleman who's who went off on this great nation of ours and I had mm. to really pull myself together. <laughs> so like, seriously? <laughs> you, this great nation of ours? Are you, are you sure? <laughs> are you really sure? Um, right. Both in terms of how great is it really and look around you at the student body. What nations do they represent? What nations do they represent? That yeah. and uh, and he was also referring it from a historical point of view like the, the great history of their nation where it's like, Come on, guys. I mean, yeah. seriously. I mean, <laughs> why? Why would you want to go there? I mean, why even make any remote attempt to open that can of worms or even touch right. that can? Right. You know where things are. Like we're all here together, and we're tr really right. tr giving our giving our best shot to forgive each other, or you know whatever. But right. why would you? Tr why would you get into history and use that as a reference for how great your nation is? That is, right. anyways. Um, but uh, where were we? How did I get here? Sorry, oh. I went off on one again. <laughs> uh, um, sort of like the, the David Byrne line from Talking Heads, right? Uh, uh, where does where does that highway lead to? How did I get here? How oh. do I work this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Story of my life. <laughs> I think, oh yes, we were talking about uh, this idea of to whom English belongs right, and yeah, how English course. became the preeminent colonialism, uh, you know. colonialism, and mm, why yes. English colonialism right. established this language as the planetary language and not German or French and so on. Correct. And then, of course, that leads, and really that tells the story of the history behind that question of to whom does English belong, right? Um, so, language is power. That's what that is an illustration of. Right? Mm -hmm. So that can either be something very chilling and very sinister, like the imposition of English and the eradication of local cultures and languages that went on during colonialism, mm -hmm. right? uh, which is what you were referring to. Some folks might see as this great nation's history. To, to many other folks, that's a, a generational trauma. Indeed. But at the same time, um, uh, whether it's, it happens to be English through historical happenstance in this case, but whatever that preeminent or dominant language is, that can be turned around to something that's a more positive narrative too. So in teaching English and helping folks become multilingual or helping folks from less represented communities or lower income backgrounds, 
helping them to uh, uh, gain greater proficiency in English or in that particular quote-unquote standard English uh, uh, dialect is giving them social and economic mobility. Mm. Very important point. Could you tell us a little more about this? Yes. So who does English, to whom does English belong? So here's the interesting thing. Um, the idea about universal literacy being sort of a, a basic human right or a, something that illustrates the success, you know, of, of a nation or quality of life of a nation, that's a very recent concept. May I ask yeah. you, how, how recent? Do you have any data on this? Just, just. So the idea of uh, uh, universal literacy, like sort of philosophically or politically being discussed as something that was desirable, really only goes back to around maybe like 18th century. Wow, that recent. And the idea of actually implementing that through a, a, the system of public education only goes back to the 19th century. No way, 19th century. <laughs> yes. So, you know, literacy rates, like many other things, when you look at that huge spike, you know, where in history, where everything sort of, you know, tootled along at a very uh, a mellow rate of change until we get to that, you know, last 150, 200 years, and then everything explodes exponentially. Technology, population, right? Everything uh, is sort of life-altering. Mm -hmm. That's the same period in which universal or, or widespread literacy becomes more common in, in many developed nations. So it's a relatively recent concept. Previously... Uh, in previous uh, historical periods, right? Literacy was reserved for the elite. Wow. The idea of uh, sacred texts, or like in, in Western countries, the Bible being written in common languages was somewhat mm. controversial only a few hundred years ago. Interesting. One of the reasons that the Protestant church originally split off from the Roman Catholic, there were many, but one was a disagreement about having uh, the mass in Latin versus the mass in languages people actually spoke, which was believed to be blasphemous by the Catholic church at the time, right? Wow. Um, how dare you put holy matters into this common tongue, the same language we use to order fish at the market, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So this idea of kind of language as, as elitism, because language does equal power and agency. Indeed. It's, right? it's necessary yes. for political advancement or economic and trade advancement, right? Very true. So that's a relatively recent innovation, this idea that uh, uh, language is sort of everyone's birthright or everyone's right to be able to use. Mm -hmm. And it's often well noted in our field that uh, uh, writing teachers in particular, you know, obviously the, the cliche is that, you know, academics and college instructors or teachers in general are all flaming liberals, <laughs> all, mm -hmm. all left-wingers, right? Mm -hmm. But particularly even within academia, writing teachers tend to be uh, uh, very progressive because there's something inherently sort of critical or, or, or radical about writing instruction. Writing instructions predicate... The teaching of English literature, just like any other tradition of, of literature or literary heritage, can often be more conservative as far as we have to preserve this past glory, right? Mm, yeah. Our cultural tradition. The teaching of writing tends to be we all need to be fluent in these dialects so that we all can have an equal set of economic opportunities and social opportunities. So it's a very different pedagogy that they're predicated on. That is so fascinating. I gotta say though, and this 
kind of circles back to a lot of what we were talking about that at that table in London. I mean, one of the things I struggled with a lot during my last college degree, the master's degree, was I, I got the feeling that I was constantly kind. Of, it was being hinted at that my writing wasn't British enough, even though it wasn't. You know, it wasn't necessarily put in those words. I mean, the pointers I was getting. And maybe this is me. I, I, I want to say that there are high chances I'm projecting here. But it, but it is interesting that different times in your life, it sounds like you've been attacked for sounding too British, exactly. and then not sounding British. This is sort of the mantra of everyone that's Mark, in your culture. You like literally that. just <laughs> summarized my life. In that, oh, that is God. exactly, the, and it, and it's an ongoing process, by the way. I'm, it's, yeah. it's, I'm always sticking out. I'm always constantly sticking out. Mm. But to, to try and stay in, uh, on context here, oh, yeah. uh, do, do you think, uh, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm, out of pure curiosity's sake, the, the latter half of what you just described, wherein writing instruction is about fluency uh, mm. at the very fa- at the highest level, do you think do you think that's a global goal for writing instructors, or is that something you'd say? No, and it's. Unfortunately, it's not even necessarily a, a universal goal within education, I was even thinking, within my country or my yeah. society. It is like so many other things that are evolving over time. It mm-hmm. is disputed, right? Tell us a little more so, about the dispute, please. What's the dispute about? Oh, yes. So uh, uh, this kind of gets at the heart of, of what I do because in addition, much of the writing uh, that I uh, teach at University of California, Davis, is scientific and technical writing because that's a research facility mostly known for what they call the hard sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Scientific research, tech innovation. Mm-hmm. Also, as a consultant, I work with a number of clients, private sector, public sector, helping them to communicate more clearly uh, with non-experts in terms of technical documents, right? Right. So my whole focus is what's known in, in my field as plain language or the plain language movement, Right. Government communication should be written in plain language. I like the sound of that already. Yes. Scientific documents should be written in plain language. Yet, uh, this is what that Stephen Pinker talk was speaking about. So much bad writing persists. I'm glad you loved that. I thought you would get a kick out of that. Indeed. So much bad writing persists. So much gobbledygook in writing that is needlessly ornate and obfuscates the truth. All of this remains. And uh, folks that have, and that's a more traditional way to write, right? Um, and one of, the, one of the things that's happening with language is that it is evolving, English certainly is evolving, to become more direct, slightly less formal sounding in those uh, professional and scientific settings, mm-hmm. uh, incorporate more visuals into it, and essentially just become more efficient, yep. right? And and that, I think, is is evolving in that direction because language is becoming more universal and less a reflection of privilege. So good. I'd, right? never, I'd never looked at it from that point of view. That is so good. It makes so much sense. It really accounts for how you, if you look at even formal documents or documents that are meant to be a sort of a public record for educated, quote unquote, people, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. An article in the Times or the Post or something like that, if you're in the States. And you were to compare that even to ordinary people's correspondence or newspaper or magazine articles from in English 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the older forms of writing seem incredibly ornate and and sort of decorative sentence length is much longer the vocabulary is much more uh, obscure right 
Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why our language is evolving in that direction, the most common uh, explanation for that is, this is the John McWhorter speech I say, is, oh, it's technology. Technology's ruining the way that we write. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a great deal to be said that no, language has become more accessible and used by more people. It's become more globalized, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is going to become less formal because the uh, use of language uh, is less and less about demonstrating my pedigree, if you will, you know, and my education and my superiority and more about communicating clearly and efficiently between equals. So true. Oh yeah. Equals the. That's that's implied by clear Mm -hmm. communication or plain language implies I'm not elevating myself above you to sound efficient. I just want to communicate to you individual to individual. Oh my God. So good. That sounds like a lot of work though, because here, here, it is. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, You're fighting the establishment and the academic establishment, among other things. Very true. But there is another side to the story, which, mm. which I would like to point out. There is a demographic yes. out there who is not ready to handle that sense of equality. No, you know, no it, it, they it, fight ca- it. Ca- case in point, you, some of the Chinese students you were referring to, and I, I happen to I, I teach in India as well. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the students I work with, they shy away from adult communication when they're handed the responsibility when, when the stage is theirs mm-hmm. to say this piece right they shy away then you know there's that same right. question is this a trap right so yeah. how, how's how's that demographic going to be dealing with that this movement of equality i remember having that uh, experience with one of my students in a, a, a english uh, as a second language class Uh, at the university. And one of the students literally asked me, she was really having trouble kind of getting started with this draft. And I I met with her and said, well, let's, you know, let's uh, think about what you want to say. And what I'll frequently do if students get sort of flummoxed with the the writing at the sentence level to express themselves, we'll say, "Eh, don't worry about the page right now. Just look at me and let's just have a dialogue and tell me what you want to say in your own words. Right. And, And, you know, that's just tell me what you think. And she said, I don't know what I think. What do you think I should say? Oh my God. I can so relate to that. I've literally had identical situations, like from the point of view of, uh, from the educator's lens um, as much. How do you handle these situations? Well, fortunately, I had uh, uh, spent enough time with this uh, population, again, not to generalize, but to know what some general trends and and shared experiences many folks had. Mm -hmm. So I didn't immediately assume, oh, the student's just being lazy and wants me to do the work for them. I knew the student was hardworking and was very motivated to succeed. So I assumed that it was some of this cultural baggage that I had seen. And I said, I... uh, if I recall, I said something to the effect of, I know it might be unusual. You might not be so used to somebody asking for what your opinion is instead of just summarizing or paraphrasing what someone else has written. But it's really important that you do both of those things in in this assignment. So mm-hmm. let's take a look at the two readings. Which one do you just instinctively think this one better reflects what my feeling is? And then start to ask yourself why. Right. So we began to sort of talk that out and take some notes and then, okay, let's turn that into a sentence and then a paragraph. Right. And then they did get to, in in doing that, summarize what the readings they were responding to, where they felt a little more comfortable because it's sort of like, all right, now let's 
do something a little outside your comfort zone. Now let's go back to something you're more comfortable with so you can kind of progress gradually, right? And they made a a tremendous uh, progress uh, over the course of that quarter. My question always is, once that student has finished that assignment, what are they taking away? Do you think Mm -hmm. the impact that assignment has is something they're going to actually be implementing in real life later on? I really hope so. I think that part of the the way that we try to assure that that happens is to design assignments that are really relevant to students, right? Uh, Oh, so good. Right? That, that, the particular genres or the situations that we create for them to write in can be more or less relevant. And that depends on our pedagogy as teachers, right? Mm-hmm. So often I usually rail against this in my classes. Um, so much of the, the writing instruction that we receive feels disconnected from, from the real world, quote unquote. It's purely classroom essays or genres where our audience is merely the teacher. Mm-hmm. And I really try to get students away from that. The more we can instruct students by telling them the ways in which language uh, does equal economic and social mobility and agency and establishing their own identity and having some impact on the world around them. And, and really, it, it, it gives you a power of self-determination to a certain extent. So and true. to teach them that good writing comes out of very specific situations and needs and audiences, right? Absolutely. Something they do in that area is more likely to be something they can continue to implement. Mm. Um, so, oh, go ahead. No, 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 please, please. I was just going to say, I was going to give an example yes, with please. my first year uh, writing classes, yes, uh, first year college writing classes, rather than the standard, here's an issue, or pick an issue and then write sort of an essay in the abstract about what side you support, right? Mm-hmm. I'm more likely to say something like choose an issue that's localized that you might reasonably have a certain amount of agency over, right? Mm. A campus issue or within the local community. Then don't write a classroom essay. Do some research and decide what genre of writing you would use to try and influence opinion or future policy or decision. Is it a letter to the editor of the local paper? Is it a formal business proposal? Is it a, a grant funding proposal? Mm. Uh, Is it um, a presentation that you would give at a town hall meeting or a board planning board meeting, right? Um, Is it a social media post, right? Mm. Research what are the conventions of that genre, who's likely to read it, Mm -hmm. and what the expectations of that audience are. That's something that we have at least a greater chance they're going to carry that forward because it connected in in some way with uh, a reality and a real impact. Like a real life relevance. Yeah. So do you throw the ball in their court for them to choose these topics completely on their own? Or do you try and get a feel for the room and, or, and suggest topics you think might be relevant to the lives these students have led? Or is it a bit of a mix it, of the both? It's a mix, yeah. Because you will have some students that will already have some uh, ideas about what they want to discuss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some students that we'll need more guidance. And so I'll generally give sort of parameters to it. Like, let's try to make it something uh, localized, at least to within this community or maybe state level at the most. Um, let's it'll keep it something in which you could legitimately have some say, even if it was trying to uh, address someone in power or get other folks to do the same. And then I'll give several examples of common types of uh, uh, issues. And I'll always help the individual students 
you know, come to a decision. And there'll be some kind of pre-writing activity where I sort of help them vet, you know, oh, is that scope appropriate? You know, is it too large of an issue or too focused of an issue? Is it something that's reasonable, right? How much knowledge information do we need about the background of this issue, et cetera? Amazing. And sometimes just helping them identify issues that they care about and that they can use their agency toward, I think is, is useful for them. Fantastic. Inspiring stuff. Um, something, uh, this is again, something that probably can't be generalized, but do you, uh, in most cases, when, if, if any, assuming some of these students might have um, some grappling ground with, with these assignments, mm. is it mostly about the what or the how? I would say it's it's probably evenly distributed, but the what usually is not, the issue is not usually finding an issue that they are concerned about. It's often, and, and you know, this gets to larger issues with our, our public discourse, unfortunately, in mm-hmm. this country, particularly in the U.S. Um, often once they've identified an issue, there's some interesting uh, uh, grappling with rhetoric that goes on, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I'll have to take them through, we end up kind of doing a little mini unit often on logic, right? So Mm -hmm. what is the cause of this issue? If you don't identify what the the actual cause of the the problem or the issue is, you perceive it, you don't know what to advocate for, right? And I'm always very specific that it can't just be about raising consciousness about an issue or sort of venting about an issue. Mm -hmm. What is a particular response that you think would be an effective response, not to necessarily ameliorate the problem entirely, but to help address it or mitigate it, right? And and why, uh, what evidence do we have that this is a successful approach, right? So it's, you know, Americans have no shortage of things they have strong opinions about, but the logic is not always there about, well, what, is this a real problem? What's the yeah. cause of this problem if we correctly identified it, right? And there's only so much I can do within one course to undo a lot of the misinformation that's out there. True but, that. you know, we try to give them some basics about identifying a, a, a cause and looking for some evidence and identifying a path forward or at least one possible response. I will, if I may add, I'm not sure that's an, that problem, that, or I'm not sure problems is a fair word, but that trend is exclusive to America anymore. I mean, sadly, no. Yeah. I mean, the whole rant um, addiction, <laughs> that, that's, that's quite a right. global theme at this point. Um, True. Uh, As is that form of populism that tends to be sort of anti-science, yes. anti, uh, right? It can be yeah. quite chilling at times. It's interesting. I've noticed, and I'm, I'm putting myself on yes. the, out on a ledge here when I say this, but it's been <laughs> a, a lot of times. It's uh, I've, it's been very interesting to observe how um, it, it's so easy to become our oppressors. You know, mm. if we if we mm-hmm. fight too hard, it's it's so easy to embody the very people we think are oppressing us or actually are oppressing us if we fight too hard uh, in, the, in reference to the ranting thing. And I have noticed, especially True. in the past uh, the few years, you know, um, I want to be careful get, get, getting too uh, blatant about political opinions here because I know that uh, that can be a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, do, I, I do struggle sometimes to distinguish between the two poles sometimes, they often come across as very similar to me. <laughs> I, I don't know who's right or left anymore on, on some right. days. 
I agree. When you get to either extreme of the political spectrum, the yeah. type of rhetoric that's used becomes startlingly similar, right? Yes. Although the individual positions on the issues may differ. Yes. The the yeah, the type of, of, of rhetoric and the type of sort of blunted discourse is very similar. Indeed. And that that, that yeah. can be a very scary revelation. Uh, yes. Yes. It, any kind of rhetoric that will tend to focus on there's absolutely no compromise. It must be, you know, exactly this one way. Uh, we are against certain things simply because they come from this source that we've deemed the enemy, right? Things that exactly. are tending to foster more division rather than a moderate path or mediation. So they so become true. only kind of self-perpetuating. Yeah. So self-perpetuating is the word. I was just about to say, you know, that's a vicious cycle just waiting to happen. Yes. Right? Yep. Bingo. Exactly. We're over an hour, by the way, FYI. I do want to respect wow. your time. Yeah, it's like, it feels like 15 <laughs> time, minutes. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun, as the old saying goes. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but there are a couple of specific topics I do want to address before I let yes. you. There's this third aspect to my relationship with English I do want to uh, share with mm. you and uh, pick your brain on, which is uh, English in Germany. Huh. Germany is probably the one of the most uh, prof proficient in um, right. in English. Um, I'm not sure if you, if you, if you visited uh, yes. recently. Uh, but it's one of the countries, uh, I mean, generally speaking, Central Europe is uh, a lot more fluent in English than it was, say, 15 right. years ago. I mean, right. when my family, uh, I'm, I'm quasi second generation German, uh, moved to Germany. Uh, my uncle moved there in what, 1951, I think. Okay. He literally had to learn the language from scratch. It was either that right. or no conversation during the day. <laughs> it was either sign languages and it was either sign language or German. That's those were right. your only options. And today, English is an official second language in a city like Berlin. Right. Uh, Berlin is an exception, I will say. Um, uh, my, one of my roommates is a dude from Tokyo who's been living in Berlin for 10 years. Doesn't speak a word hmm. of German. Gets by. Computer completely with English and it's perfectly, doing perfectly <laughs> fine. So Berlin's an exception, but even right. the length and breadth of Germany, the rest of it, unless you're in some outback in the village or something, you'll get by right. with English. Interesting. Well, uh, the reason I um, address this is when I started uni in Germany uh, in mm -hmm. the mid-2000s, I was refused a place uh, uh, for a major in songwriting because I wrote in English. Really? Yes. And uh, and one of the prerequisites at the time, even though not officially declared, and I went to a super elite uh, <laughs> uh, uni that, uh, with like, like 600 applicants for a seat. Um, uh, wow. Per seat, yeah, or, or something like that. I, th I think, uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, it might, yes. might have changed until now. But at the time, it was really one of the... Very few places where you could actually get a degree in songwriting. I didn't get it. Uh, I was allowed to take classes and uh, do my songwriting modules and whatnot. But um, part of the reason being that um, I, my, I did write in English. And I found it very interesting. Right. And I still find it interesting. In Germany, for example, the way English is developing is fascinating. Even 10 years back, a lot of mm. songwriters, professional musicians, who were very well established, uh, very well respected musicians, were writing songs in English, but couldn't really have a conversation with you in the language for, for, <laughs> for extended periods of time. There's that. And uh, I also find it extremely interesting how Berlin, for example, has its own dialect of English at this point. Is this something you'd like to comment on? 
Well, definitely. There's a couple, there's so much to unpack in that. That is right. fascinating. I have to wonder. So it's interesting you mentioned like this change from the early 1950s until the present of English becoming much more predominant mm -hmm. uh, in the country, mm -hmm. which to me would have to be an outgrowth of, you know, the aftermath of World War II and the Marshall Plan and the U.S. kind of stepping in and saying, okay, we are going to shepherd the Western European countries, mm -hmm. right? We're going to give you all this economic aid. Uh, our infrastructure, you know, our military industrial complex will help rebuild Europe, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll, just like what the, the former you know, USSR was doing with Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. it was a different form of sort of a lot of history books refer to it as like invisible colonialism. Right. Colonialism, not by military might, but by economic persuasion. Interesting. I have to wonder if something like, requiring folks to be songwriting in German, for instance, might be a cultural response to that. It was. We have to preserve our heritage, right? Was. That was my very first instinct. Yeah. Bingo. Very, you're, you're right on point. That exact, that that's exactly what it was. Okay. And they had to cut that endeavor short very quickly because then the rise of German, like neo-German uh, nationalism this happened. Is it, right. It was right on the feet of that. So they had to cut that short. So if I'd applied today, I probably would have gotten a seat that's the arbitrarity uh, but at the time they were really very very open about the fact that they were giving preference to songwriters who wrote in german that changed very it's, quickly in fact you, fun fact uh, one of their head mentors who was at the time was a pop star got into some really controversial media because uh, and was oh, labeled really? right wing yeah it's funny because uh, this is a this is a guy this is he uh, he's called Xavier Naidu i mean it's uh, i can quote his name because he's quite well known uh, he's german of south african slash south asian origin and huh. uh, was uh, caught um uh, you know, caught up in a right-wing mess. Uh, so <clears throat> that endeavor cut itself short very quickly. But um, <laughs> the correlation I find very interesting at this point is that yeah. Berlin speaks its own English today. And right. it's, it's a very, very interesting mix. And uh, I, I, for one, love it. It's the one reason why I yeah. eventually moved my base there. But it's also really interesting how... Uh, I personally find it refreshing how they've gotten over the stigma of the German accent thing. They flaunt their German accents. No one's trying to speak. <laughs> and that is, a new, that is a new development too. Because even 10 years back, I knew yeah. a lot of German students I, I, were work, I was working with would tell me about how they were being forced to speak with British or American accents in the lessons so let's do this let's talk accents what's what's with yes. accents here and where does <laughs> i mean what does speaking english comprise of? is it just is it just grammar is it just your vo vocabulary or where do accents fit into the language so the once again there's a traditional approach and then what we hope is a more enlightened approach more recently so the traditional approach of course would have been that part of uh, uh, english fluency was also having this uniform accent and you would try mm -hmm. to eliminate the regional accent right hmm. now there we don't formally teach that anymore but there's still uh, a sense in which you know standard english is uh, uh the the preferred dialect for more professional or, or formal settings right mm -hmm. and folks will try to lose their accent right it's right. like this idea about uh, uh teaching students that use african-american vernacular english or aave at home mm -hmm. right there was a famous piece by the, the writer David Foster Wallace where he talks about this. Uh, and he uh, uh, 
was teaching a literacy program uh, in a, a U.S. in an inner city area and having to, you know, speak to students and explain why they had to alter the way they spoke English at home, right, or in church or in, you know, local businesses in their community. Whoa. And he, you know, was very blunt about it. And apparently the story that he tells goes that he got in some trouble with his superiors for being honest and saying, well, the system is is biased against you and the language that you speak. And I feel conflicted that I have to help perpetuate that, uh, but I can't change it single-handedly. And what I can tell you is if you want to succeed at a, a, a in a broader sense outside of this community where you have a lot of extra obstacles, you're going to need to master this uh, more standard form of English. And maybe you can use that if you gain enough power in this society to change some of what's inherently unfair about the system the way it is now. Fascinating. And he said, it's a trade-off. And I feel conflicted and almost like I'm selling out by, by teaching you to do this. But the way I deal with it is if I'm going to teach that to you, I'm going to be transparent about it. Oh, that is very refreshing, though. I mean, I'd be extremely grateful to have a professor um, tell yes, me that. Yes, it's a fascinating essay. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Oh, yes, please. And I um, did that thing that we always do where I'm sort of like mentally arguing in the margins as I'm reading this. <laughs> <laughs> I would have taken a slightly different approach, though. I don't think, I think one of the advantages we're in in the historical place that we're in now uh, at least in in uh, many countries in, in developed nations, right where we don't or nations where we don't have a literal totalitarian government yet, mm. we learning this standard form of 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 uh, English does not have to mean cultural annihilation. It can exist side by side. Nice, right? Excellent. When I've taught students in in similar situations, I've always looked, I've always addressed it as. The version of English that you're speaking is legitimate. It's not bad English or bad grammar. There's tons of studies on AAVE, even to studies that link the particular uh, grammatical uses to West African dialects that were suppressed largely but still carried over mm -hmm. by folks that were brought over here against their will as part of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. So it's a perfectly legitimate dialect. Um, and I will tell people, I don't think that you should lose it. There are plenty of opportunities where you can use it. Local business, church, local social groups, right? Within your family, right? If you uh, want to pursue other areas, formal education, university level education, which I hope you do, right? If you want to advocate a more politically in a broader field or uh, su succeed in a business or private sector in a larger field, you'll have to learn this other dialect that you use in these particular situations. You do what linguists call code switching. Oh. Uh, and you I, don't I, do I, it out of shame or to pass. Yeah. You do it strategically to gain agency and power. You don't lose your identity, but you gain the ability to speak to wider groups of people. Ooh, I could go off on one. Uh, go off on one. I'm, I'm, I have some strong opinions on code switching. What do you think? Um, what do you think? Yeah, you I, must have done it so much. I, I'm happy to share my thoughts on this. Though. Before I go ahead, and uh, let's put a pin on that, I'm happy, very happy to share my thoughts. Um, uh, here's a question. What's the line between an accent and a dialect? It's a blurry line, right? Is, so... Yeah. Um, Accent I would define more as I am attempting to use all of the grammatical constructions and standard vocabulary of the, the standard dialect or language, right? Mm -hmm. But I simply am pronouncing things slightly differently because, you know, our uh, uh, 
mouth and tongue muscles are trained at a young age by what that primary language is. Right. It's difficult to undo that. Mm-hmm. But thanks for addressing it, that, by the way, the motoric yeah. part of it. Yeah. People, it, right. it's, 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 no, it's not addressed enough. Yeah. Sorry. Well, and you're absolutely right. There's a, a certain developmental window, right? When uh, uh, the muscle memory of those, the, the mouth and tongue muscles is being trained. And it's really difficult to undo that. It's actually easier to retrain neural pathways than it is to retrain some of that muscle memory. Very true. Thank you for mentioning that. But then it, the line gets somewhat blurred when you add to that accent where you're using particular, um, sometimes uh, used to be called patois in the colonial days, right? Where I might pick a slang term or a term from this mm-hmm. language as well as from the second language, right? Mm-hmm. Or I might create port Manteau words of of uh, uh, word parts from each language, or I might use this language, but use some of the sentence structure uh, of the second language. Right? Yep. Then it gets into more of what we call a dialect, similar to that particular Berliner form of of uh, English. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have that in the States too. So there's many different dialects of, of what they call Spanglish, a mix of Spanish and English, right? right? Yeah. There's a particular dialect in New York City called New Yorican, which is a mixture of Puerto Rican Spanish, which is itself a very distinct dialect of Spanish and uh, uh, English. Wow, I did not know about that. I was expecting that description to be very different when you said New Yorican. <laughs> So New Yorkian too, folks that are from Puerto Rican descent, many of whom proudly identify as patriotic Americans, mm-hmm. their New Yorkian dialect is very important to them and a major source of pride and identity for them. Gotcha. Same thing with folks that speak a, a combination or hybridized dialect of uh, Tagalog and English, mm-hmm. uh, folks from Filipino backgrounds. And they strongly identify that with what they call sort of Pinoy pride, which is like a, Fil- a Filipino American pride. Yes, I have. Uh, I have. Um, I've seen yeah. parallel movements uh, to British Asians in in the UK. Well, right. Well, what, when, when the UK says Asian, they mean what they actually mean is South Asian, by the way. But the terminology True. is just st- stuck with Asian. Uh, and yeah, uh, um, and to be fair, I don't identify. Even though my, my earliest year, formative years, were in London, I don't identify as British Asian. And um, it, it is sometimes I'll struggle to follow the dialect as well. Um, I want to ask you a question. Yes, please. What do you identify as? Have you been through a process of kind of constructing your your own identity and felt uh, uh, called on to sort of hybridize what your identity is? Or is it a question that you feel is too limiting and you don't want to be labeled? How do you look at that? Thank you for asking that. Um, sure. Well, if I, if I were to be descriptive, I, at this point, I find the fairest answer I can give to that. And I take a lot of elements into account when I say this. I identify as German of South Asian ancestry with a past in London as well. Uh, mostly because I have, you know, be, becoming a German citizen was a choice. It's something I did by choice. Mm. There's a lot of thought that went into it. Um, it's it's where I've spent most of my life, even not don't, not really my formative ones. And it's I'm very much a German product with mm. a lot of South Asian uh, roots or whatever you know lenses involved as well. Mm. But uh, most of what my adult life is built upon is something I have built in that country. And I feel like mm. it's th- the fairest answer is to call myself German. Right. Uh, it's interesting, though. Like Germans, when they call themselves Germans, they call themselves Deutsch, right? 
Right, Deutschlander, yeah. Yeah, I, I can, um, just Deutsch, actually. And I, that's okay. Funny, and that's the funny part. I can't bring myself to call myself Deutsch as much, but German I'm very comfortable with. So there's something going on there. So I, I do definitely think, I'd like to think I... Um, also, Germany, FYI, has been through some major changes in their overall constitution, not constitution as much, but their policy. See, sure. even though my uncle uh, moved to... Uh, Germany in the early 50s, like basically literally after the Second World War, like he was mm. one of the immigrant workers um, you know, right. who rebuilt that country. Right. He technically wasn't entitled to citizenship for pretty much all his life. He became a German mm. citizen literally like three years back or four years back. Oh, wow. That yeah, recent. Okay. That recent. And up until 2007, Germany, even though uh, immigrants were taking on uh, or... Mm-hmm. Um, immigrants for lack of a better term, uh, were taking on German citizenships, there wasn't an official law to actually apply for it. I'm literally the first generation of Germans who (laughs) who actually had access to an immigration policy. And Ah. uh, in in my case, they they actually invited me to take citizenship. That's a whole different story. And huh. so, um, yes, to answer, that was a very long story. I do identify as German, albeit... Uh, not Deutsch. <laughs> uh, I wonder if that's because of the concept of of uh, using that term uh, being Deutsch. Uh, does that have more of like a historical connotation to it, whereas whereas you represent more sort of a form of a new type of German citizen that's, that's globalized? That's the one. Yes, that's the second one. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I represent okay. I represent a, a German who who can be brown. Mm-hmm which even up until right. five years or even six years back was a very controversial topic, you know. Sure. And um, um, actually COVID and the whole Black Lives Matter movement uh, during the time, that, that that was a huge expose on passive aggressive racist tendencies mm-hmm. Germany yeah. had and never had a chance to actually address because they were so caught up in the post-World War II narrative that they had, right. hadn't actually realized that the definitions of racism have moved on since. So there was a lot of catching up to do there. So they have uh, they become much more covert. Indeed, indeed, and that's more difficult in some ways to identify and address. Yes, and I actually worked for the German government for the longest time. I was uh, tenure <laughs> tenure with the uh, city council uh, in the town where oh. I lived. So part of my work was uh, what they called Integrationsarbeit, which is basically helping. Um, second generation Germans oh, uh, of okay. immigrant background integrate into right. society. So, yeah, I mean, that that's really a whole <laughs> entirely different <laughs> podcast episode. But um, I will say if people ask me like a uh, cultural definition sans nationality, I describe myself as what is referred to as a third culture kid. Ah, uh, yes. Are you familiar right. with that terminology? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. That's my go-to. So depending on who's asking, how much time we'll have, it'll either be, oh, I'm just a third culture kid, I'm you know, and so yeah. on. Or I'll just yeah. say I'm German. And um, yeah, a lo- lot of factors I do have to kind of... <laughs> um, Many of the students I work with, the international students I work with, are themselves third culture kids, which is where I became familiar with that term. Awesome. It's it's very refreshing yeah. to know that yeah. uh, you know, the terms it's that it's spreading that people are aware of that mm-hmm. terminology. Because uh, I think I mean at some point we're all going to end up becoming third culture kids. Uh, in, in right. Kids. That is the di- and because our society is going in that direction, it's why languages are getting more globalized. You're getting more 
different dialects and sort of hybridization of language. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea of language being more universal and accessible to folks. And we're either going to embrace that, and and it's a, a complex process. It's not an easy process, but Very try true. to create, some, find some kind of equilibrium with that. Or the other reaction is folks go to the other extreme, and that's where you see the um, right wing populism, the conservatism. We have to protect our cultural heritage, and which often is translated to our language, yeah, right? Exactly. German only, English only. We have our own, you know, versions of those people that want to promote those policies here. Yes, and I'm intimately aware. Yes, and And, yes, so that is, that's the crossroads that we're at, and it really intersects with language. So true. Code switching, you asked me about code switching. I I do want to answer your question. Um, I have a background in psychology as well, and um, from, to the best of my knowledge, the research I've done, code switching isn't a healthy practice. I mean, the effect it has on the brain is is usually what results in what is referred to loosely as cultural schizophrenia. Mm. So if you're constantly, um, it's one thing to do it genuinely a free will where you really want to do it to serve a specific purpose where you know, okay, this is the best way I can serve a specific situation for a greater good. That's, I I get that as vague as it may sound. Um, but it's another thing if you're if it's something you're being forced to do, if it's right. a, if it's a coping mechanism, if it's a survival technique, that mm-hmm. can that can go sideways very quick. And I've made that experience. I've had yeah. I've, I've I've lost what I've uh, it feels like I've lost about a decade of my life being mm. in, in, in a long-term state of code switching and the impact mm. that's had on my psyche uh, was damaging on the long term and I had to yeah. do some serious inner work in order to kind of yeah. re- reclaim uh, my uh, true um, voice in a way. Mm. Uh, fun story, fun fact, I had to literally fake an Indian, Indian accent and an Indian <laughs> <laughs> dialect during my uh, younger years, uh, during my teenagers in, in order to fit in because it was, right. that was code switching, you know, in a way. It was wow. either, it was either that or, co- or uh, basically being constantly bullied. Right. Um, it was almost like a survival tactic. It was very situation. much a survival tactic. It was, yeah. it was a complete mm. survival tactic. And it's funny, I'd, got so, I'd gotten so lost in that survival tactic. And this is a mm. funny story uh, that I'd even forgotten who I was. And then when I was 25, I returned to London again for the first time after my, uh, I'd left as a kid. And leaving London for me was also a traumatic experience because my parents right. didn't actually tell me we were leaving. I thought we were going on vacation. Oh, uh, you know? oh God. To be fair, we, we led very nomadic lives at the time anyways. That's a whole different story. But so, the, so I returned to London 20 years later for the first time in my life. Mm. And I refer back to what you said about the motoric aspects to uh, accents. Mm. All of yeah. a sudden, I found myself speaking a completely different language that I hadn't been, <laughs> I felt like I hadn't been speaking for almost 20 years. The English, but, I actually grew up But it came back on. to you. It Did came it back, back to you? It came back to me and it came back to me instantly. And it was one of the uh, most shocking experiences of my life. Like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Now, who am I? I've been speaking of this <sighs> an Indian dialect for the past 12 years of my life. Why am I sounding like exactly the kind of person I'd be made, who'd be made fun of? Right. Uh, <sighs> It, quote unquote yeah. back home even though I you know even even that right. is a controversial term so uh, and wow. that, 
that is that was my first confrontation with what code switching is, even though the mm. term was not something I was privy to, and uh, it was the beginning of holy shit. I, I need to unpack this and, and, and it, <laughs> figure it, out who I am. <laughs> figure out who I am, and I was. Yeah. It was surprisingly painful as well. You know, it resulted in a lot mm. of uh, destroyed relationships, in a lot of mm. uh, f- figuring out a lot of bad decisions. Because uh, at, at the time, uh, you know, I was in my early twenties. Not that that's a generalization. I don't want to be ageist, actually. Um, <laughs> that's not a fair generalization. But uh, yeah, so very long answer to your question on my wow. opinion to code switching. So um, I do want to revert back to, uh, and, and I know I, w- I do want to respect your time. Um, we've been at it for a while. But here's a question I think our listeners would really like to know, um, <clears throat> really benefit from. When you're speaking to your very multilingual, very culturally diverse <clears throat> students and trying to help them achieve economic mobility, achieve an ease of access to the privileges um, a lot of us are are born into yeah how do you ease them into the process without them feeling out of place or feeling attacked for lack of a better term right because i think that's a process every one of us should learn right i think that there's a couple things there's things you can do sort of just generally speaking, pedagogically, and there's some things you can do in terms of your, um, on another level, which is how you interact with them on a human level. Mm-hmm. So pedagogically, I think the key, and, and you really encapsulated it, this idea that the, the legacy of code switching is a traumatic one. Yeah. It involves a lot of generational trauma, of, uh, historically, of entire groups of people whose culture and language were violently suppressed, right? Yeah. You, th- you think about folks that were taken from their families happened to Aboriginal folks in Australia, Native mm-hmm. Americans in, in the States, mm-hmm. sent to live with white families. They changed their names. They were not allowed to speak their language. This happened to generations of slaves, too, mm-hmm. uh, from, from mostly Western and Central Africa. So there's a, a trauma that's inherent with that, right? Mm-hmm. But it's one of those situations of uh, taking that cultural trend that was that was traumatic or colonial and can we then use that for a better purpose? Can we turn that around and change that narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So I always present that concept of uh, uh, adopting this new uh, dialect as adding to your repertoire, right? Not replacing your, oh. the language that you already are comfortable with and, and have mastered and you, your cultural identity, but adding to it. I love the musical reference. Uh, right, yes, adding to the repertoire. Yeah. Um, and there's certain ways in which you do that. One of the things I like to speak to multilingual students about it, right off the bat is, for instance, I will say, like the majority of Americans, I know a smattering of different languages here and there, but I'm essentially monolingual. Mm-hmm. So if you ever feel frustrated or like you're not making enough progress or English is really difficult, you are far more fluent in your second language than I am in a second language. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them are not only they this may be their third or fourth language actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll start with that. And I'll always talk about the many cognitive benefits of being multilingual, and they are plentiful, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, folks that uh, are multilingual have uh, pronounced cognitive benefits. They tend to have greater ability to focus and multitask. They tend to be better at divergent thinking. 
critical thinking because they can better conceptualize other people's motives and mm. point of view. Yeah. Uh, in a dialogue. I can relate. Um, so that's some things pedagogically that we can do, right? And then on just a more human level, one of the things that was a, a bit of a bone of contention uh, uh, within our classes. So it's very interesting. So folks that come to a university that are international students will tend to group together with other, socially with other students from that background. Interesting. Right? And I, I noticed a lot of rhetoric from some of my colleagues or some folks in the university that this was unhealthy. Well, they're here to learn English. So if they only speak their home language when they're not in class, it's not beneficial. They mm -hmm. should be, you know, learning more about our culture and language. That's why they're here. They should be integrating more. And there was that, you know, it's sort of like, there's actually a book on, on race in, in here in the States called Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together? And it reminded me of that debate mm. right or that question sounds like my and, first two years in germany as well actually oh right yeah um and then there were even some uh, uh instructors in my program who were would insist when you are in class you know it's immersive you are not allowed to speak in your home language everything must be in english mm -hmm. so when they would uh, be doing group work or working in in pairs and you would hear them speak in their home language you'd go and stop them and I never felt comfortable doing that. To me, that smacked too much of that kind of cultural and linguistic eradication, mm. right? As if we are denigrating what that language is. And I, from speaking to those students, know why they are grouping together like that. Because they're dealing with that same kind of culture shock that you experience that can be traumatizing. Yeah. They, in some cases, are away from their homes and family for the first time in their lives as well. The, the usual culture shock, even within your own country and language, of going away to school for the first time. Um, and so I understand where that comes from. And so I spoke up about that and said, you know, there needs to be another approach to this, right? In which it doesn't, I don't want to feel as if I'm in an authoritarian way saying you can't speak your language. I just never felt comfortable with that. I understand the idea of immersive you know, language learning, mm -hmm. but it should be a choice. I agree. It's right. interesting. I have an aunt um, who's, um, who has mixed heritage, is a part Irish, part Indian, who now mm. teaches English in, uh, in Germany, actually. It's very interesting to observe her methods because uh, mm. she teaches for a school where immersive, well, you, you basically just, you, you're thrown in the deep end first day on and you're not allowed to speak any other language in English and um, she rightfully claims that you know that which is why that's the reason they're so popular they you know uh, what so many people sign up for their courses and they do learn very quickly but I guess the key word here is these are people who have signed up for that experience right in yeah. the case of um, other education systems right um there is a question mark. I got to say, I don't want to be, I, I'm not sure I would want to be in your shoes, Miles. I mean, mad respect. <laughs> I mean, that is such a tightrope. I mean, that's yeah. a constant balancing act. You know, it's so easy to slip, slip off or, or be labeled as either the white guy or the right. savior. Yeah, right. Or the guy, white guy with the savior complex, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, mad respect. It's uh, well for for what it counts. I got to say, the way you know your views on it is they're very inspiring. Mm. 
And then, thank you. That is that is the praise of the praiseworthy from UTL. So thank you. No, no, thank you. I have one last question. How are you doing with time? Okay. Do you have a couple of minutes? Uh, to, I do. To I'm hang? not in a rush. Okay, then hang with me for on this last question. Glad to. Which is writing. What does it stand for today, English or not? Especially with AI right. writing exploding <laughs> out of the blue. Right. It happens so fast. <laughs> it feels like yep. no one saw it coming, even though we should have seen it coming. <laughs> we should have, right? We should have. Uh, where does that leave us? And why should we still keep writing? I will answer that in two parts. Yes, please. There's a number of reasons why we should keep writing. One is one we've discussed a great deal, which is um, it is agency. It is agency, the power to change the world around you. Yes, economic and social mobility on a personal level, but uh, exponentially, that means uh, a voice, particularly in some cases to folks that have lacked a voice uh, previously. Mm-hmm. someone is going to be wielding power and shaping the world in uh, the direction they want it to go in or the shape they want it to, to occupy. I want there to, as many people involved in that discussion as possible from as many different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. It is also a way to record we were here and we had these thoughts. It gets at the heart of what it is to be human. Uh, the only species that we know of so far that can self-reflect on the experience of being alive being part of the universe. We can record that, right? Yeah. So the same reasons it's always been important. How does technology affect that? I can only give a provisional answer because the, the ground is shifting under us as we speak. The rate of change is so rapid, right? True. But I will tell you this. So there's been a flurry of activity to sort of get ahead of this issue of AI and, and uh, chatbots and chat GPT and things like that within my field. Mm-hmm. What we know so far is this. There's a couple of of implications there. Um, Long story short, the answer is, and I think this has always been the case with technology or global evolution of writing in general, rather than staking a conservative claim and saying this new thing is threatening our traditional ways, we have to try and embrace it so that we can shape the way it's used. So true. So well said. And I do think there's a place for that in, uh, uh, as a tool in our writing, but not to replace uh, humans. Here's the thing about AI. AI, and this is where we have some disturbing implications about AI, like with facial recognition, repeating the institutionalized racism if we're not careful, right? Mm. There's the old programming code, the, the acronym they used to use in the early first wave of computer programmers would say GIGO, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. Right, the the tool is only as good as what you program it with. So the AI is only as good as the algorithm you create for it. Yep. So the be- the best writing happens to respond to a particular situation or need and address a specific audience. Only really a cognizant human at this point can program that specificity into the or put those specific parameters into the bot. So it still needs a human and just becomes a tool that people use to express themselves and, and create rhetoric. So it's almost like a washing machine. <laughs> You're still doing laundry, but we just you know, <laughs> accelerating the process almost, isn't it? <laughs> right. We just have more tools at our disposal, right? Yeah. But the human is still the one who's setting the parameters and sort of programming what the algorithm is. And we have to have a, a relationship with that technology and shepherd it 
one of the the tests that was done on AI recently that was a little disturbing uh, is, you know, folks have put parameters in, hey, generate an article about this topic and use a certain number of sources. And the bot came back with completely fabricated sources. Okay. No one had remembered to put parameters in about what the sources are and what the determines legitimacy on where they can come from. Mm. So there's ethical considerations. So unless we are part of that development and embrace it, if we do that, we can then put those parameters into place and determine uh, how the tool is used. Sounds like a no-brainer when you put it the way you do. <laughs> Any technological tool can be used for good or for ill. Very true. I mean, it's yeah. how we we shepherd it. The question is always, you know, do our will our our spirit and our ethics evolve at the same rate as the technology? Can we keep up? Yeah, and that first word, spirit, that I think mm. that that'll be the trickiest part because we're mm. dealing with intelligence and uh, mm. well, rational, well, basically <laughs> very high speed calculators, right. where the speed is attaining mm. whole new levels, which kind of makes us question how we best define spirit in the first place. I, I think never before right. have we been forced to ask ourselves, is, spe- is spirit just an enormous degree of intelligence or is it beyond or you know, our belief systems have been yeah. questioned in, in a manner mm. like never before. I think that that brings us full circle back to the importance of music and art and creative expression to not lose thank you our our relationship with that spiritual dimension yes um, and also embrace the vulnerabilities that come with it and realize that that's what really actually defines spirit in a way or I mean at the risk of stating a personal yeah. opinion here. That was sort of the vibe I got from a lot of the your music that I've been listening to recently was sort of embracing those contradictions and vulnerabilities. That that came through to me from a lot of those tracks. You're bang on point. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It feels good to be um, huh. interpreted the right way, uh, to, to have my work interpreted the right way. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. And um, the last EP, I really put myself out there. It's the first time I've addressed... Uh, some very personal issues mm. uh, about mental yeah. health, about being a suicidal mm-hmm. teenager. And yeah. I, had to, I had to look hard and deep uh, to really ask myself if my why was in the right place, if I was doing for the mm. right reasons. But especially after COVID, uh, I mean, yeah. uh, the manner in which uh, mental health, the, the role and, and scale it's assumed since then, it felt... It felt um, it didn't feel fair to kind of keep that part of my life hidden right. anymore because uh, it's it's been thirty years since I was a teenager. I was fifteen when that mm-hmm. happened, and uh, um, I'd like to think uh, I, I healed in a manner which could be a good example for people struggling mm. with such issues. Uh, so yeah, it's I, it's as vulnerable and naked naked as I get. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you were saying. I was just going to commend you because I think there's such a need, especially post-COVID, to bring those issues out in the light and normalize that conversation. Thank you. I really so there's appreciate not that, that cycle of shame or hiding. You know? Bingo. Thank you. And right? uh, I mean, I, yes, I, I admire that. Cheers. Thank you. I mean, suicide is often looked upon as the ultimate, uh, you know, dark side of uh, poor right. mental health in a lot of ways, um, and, and you know, that's a whole different conversation altogether. But uh, it, people rarely talk to people who've overcome a phase of their lives uh, in, in that realm. Um, and uh, I, I think, in a way, it's almost a blessing for to belong to that category mm. of people. 
So, uh, well, to, to someone to see that here's someone that's dealt with those issues and has healed and is still a work in progress, yes. but is expressing his creativity and individuality and living his own life. Yes. That's I know one. that my son was incredibly impressed by you. He said, wow, you know, that Thank really you. aspired to be someone that's, you know, living this creative life like that and has this global perspective. So that's really a benefit to anyone that's struggling to be able to see. You're, of course, on the inside going, well, I'm still a work in progress. There's still places I'd like to be that I'm not. We're all like that. Yeah. But for them to say, wow, this really successful person has struggled and has come out of the other side, that's very powerful. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. And um, for my listeners as well, I can only confirm that um, it is a powerful experience. And for anyone listening who might be dealing with heavy duty demons, I can only confirm that, uh, believe it or not, even if you're on the farthest edge of a cliff, uh, there are ways to come back. And uh, that is not, that doesn't have to be a a status quo of our life at Mm -hmm. all. Well said. Well said. Quite the range of topics we addressed there. uh, (laughs) You have uh, officially qualified for our Intercontinental Drive Award. Uh, We have a few guests. uh, I I, got to admit, I have quite a I've uh, I've had quite a few where uh, this award's been awarded. So basically, people (laughs) I'd love to go on an Intercontinental Drive with because I could go on forever. Wonderful, yes, exactly. But that go being on said, another 90 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed. But that being said, <laughs> we do live in a world of linear time and I want to respect indeed. yours. Uh, thank you indeed. so much for doing this, Miles, uh, for coming on. Oh, my, my great pleasure. I remember that encounter at Tate Modern very, very fondly. <laughs> it was, it's, it's Me too. so beautiful to just kind of meet people uh, yes. um, randomly and just hit it off instantly <laughs> with like zero. It's, 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 a, it's a privilege and a blessing and I'm it really is. glad we could continue this conversation today. I am as well. Thank you so much for the invite and for the opportunity to continue the conversation. Absolutely. Pleasure and honor is all mine. Just FYI, I'm stopping the recording here. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out here.